triathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing, matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and with each episode, Heartbeat will bring you insights into this fascinating sport. To many, the cross-country aspect of biathlon is easy to understand. It's energy, power, tactics, speed. It's a brutal battle pushing your body to the extreme. Shooting? Well, that's quite different. It's mysterious. It's precise. Your heart is pumping at 160 beats per minute. You're trying to hit a two-inch target. You squeeze the trigger and a bullet rockets out at 333 meters per second. In just over a tenth of a second, it strikes the target 50 meters away. Crazy, huh? Well, our guest today has added a new dynamic for U.S. biathletes since joining the team as a shooting coach in 2017. Now in his fifth season, Matt Emmons is a three-time Olympic shooting medalist for Team USA, opening his career with a gold medal at Athens in 2004. Ironically, he's probably known more for the medal he missed in Athens. More on that later. In his tenure with U.S. Biathlon, he's helped athletes improve their skill level and most of all, their confidence. Matt is an engaging voice for shooting. How did he find his way into the sport? What brought him to biathlon? I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Olympic champion Matt Emmons on Heartbeat. And today, Heartbeat is taking you all the way to the Czech Republic with shooting coach and Olympic gold medalist, Matt Emmons. And Matt, thanks for joining us on Heartbeat today. It's great to be here, Tom. So what have you been up to lately? Uh, How are things in the Czech Republic? We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but uh, what has life been like there so far this winter? Oh, it's it's actually been pretty good. Finally now, uh, got a little bit colder right here around the holidays and um, came home from Hochfeldsen uh, just a couple days before Christmas and then trying to get things ready. Thankfully, my wife had done a lot. But yeah, then my brother and sister-in-law came over with their two kids. So uh, yeah, we've just been hanging out at the house and just really taking it easy and enjoying a little bit of time off. What are some of the Christmas traditions in the Czech Republic that maybe we wouldn't be familiar with? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. I was just in Hochfeldsen. Pretty much all the athletes were asking what we do and how we try to blend the two holiday traditions. So The way that we do it on the 24th is the day that we celebrate actual Christmas. In Czech tradition, we have potato salad. It's always the same recipe with some cut up pieces of ham, but not like a chunk of ham, almost more like spam or something like that. Some mustard and some pickles and some things like that are all thrown in there. It's actually really good. Very simple, but very good. And then uh, we have fried carp, believe it or not. That's the, the Christmas tradition, but we also do some like pork schnitzel, and then also some some fried chicken. And then after we eat dinner, then the kids disappear upstairs, and then the baby Jesus brings the presents, which is my brother and brother-in-law and me. Um, we bring the presents and put them under the tree, and uh, then we ring a bell. And then once the bell is rung, then the kids are allowed to come downstairs, and then the baby Jesus has left all the presents. So then we open up presents, the kids play and stuff, and uh, we still do put up the stockings by the fireplace. 
And then during the night, between the 24th and 25th, Santa Claus comes and puts some presents in the, the stocking. So we still leave milk and cookies for Santa Claus. And then in the morning, the kids have kind of like a, a second part of Christmas. That's really amazing. You know, that sounded really wonderful until you got up to the fried carp. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely not everybody's favorite, but it's one of those things, a, tra- a tradition. So we do it. And, you know, I always, I always definitely have one piece of carp. And I have to say, like, the flavor's not terrible. It's not my favorite fish by any means. Uh, but the, really, the worst part is it's so bony. They're just, you have to be really careful with the bones. Yeah. I, I actually grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin and we used to scuba dive and, and we had a lot of carp in our lakes. So, um, I would actually take a lot of carp out of the lake with spear, with a spear gun. Oh, cool. but, uh, don't know that we ever, don't know that we ever enjoyed them for a Christmas, uh, <laughs> Christmas celebration. <laughs> so let's go back to Hawk Felsen. Uh, a, a really good performance there by Claire Egan. And I know that as a shooting coach, uh, you must've felt some, some pride there and in watching her perform there oh yeah absolutely um claire honestly i've been working with her now for oh gee was five years i guess every year she's been getting better and better and better she's always been a pretty good prone shooter but standing has kind of been the challenge for her and i would say this year for sure she's definitely taken some steps forward um we kind of changed around the the shooting plan for this year and how we approach the preseason and obviously with a covid year it was definitely a little bit more difficult in some aspects than we had hoped for. But I have to credit Claire of doing the work that we asked of her to do. And it's definitely been paying dividends. You know, in Hokefield, I wouldn't say it was her best shooting weekend. I mean, it was solid, but not as good as she'd been shooting, but still very, very good. Really have to have to give her uh, hats down to the work that she's been putting in. And finally, the ski speed came back. And that's definitely one thing, like when you look at the shooting, if the person is having a hard time with their ski speed, sometimes they push a little bit too hard. And that way, when they hit the range, just everything gets more difficult. So the shooting gets more difficult. When they're in better shape and their body feels better, not only can they go faster on the skis, but then the shooting does come easier too. So things are kind of really coming together for her. So you were able to come to Craftsbury for a little bit this fall and actually have contact with the athletes? Yeah. Yeah, I was able to come over. Um, unfortunately, none of the other coaches were able to come because there was still the travel ban on Europeans. But where I'm a dual citizen, I was able to finally come over the beginning of October. So I went to Lake Placid for about a week, then made a few, few days stop over in Jericho and then continued up uh, to Craftsbury where we had kind of a national team camp. Really the first chance that we were, I was able to, the only chance I was able to get on the ground with them um, not with the whole team, but with most of the team. Over the summer, we spent a lot of time doing video calls, things like that. Thank God we have um, some pretty good technology to get us through um, some of the difficult challenges. But being able to spend time with them was was huge. Super thankful that I was actually able to do that. So how are you able to use video? Is, is it like you set up a Zoom call from the range and watch them uh, watch them shoot? Yeah, actually, there were some times where we did either a FaceTime call or a Zoom call, you know, whatever medium that we had. We also have a, uh, a laser, well, it's really a, a camera system that attaches to the barrel of the rifle. And they need to have someone there helping them. So like, say, in Lake Placid, it was Tim Burke, or in Craftsbury, it was Mike Gibson, or whoever was around that could help them run this while they were shooting. And so what that does, it, it allows me to see exactly what they're, they're doing on the target. So I can see the, the tracing on the target. And when I see certain movement patterns or the size of the movement patterns, it might tell me what's going on with them. So I can give them advice of, okay, 
try this or try this, or let's make an adjustment on the rifle and see what that does. So that's one thing. Usually we would work over that. And then I'll, obviously I'm watching them over the video and then the coach would, would show me the, the computer that they're working on so I could see the tracing. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it works. So they would be out there shooting or, or in a room somewhere dry firing and I'm watching and seeing what they're doing. Oh, that's just fascinating. Amazing how technology has helped us and, and in the pandemic, how we've been discovering new uses of technology. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk about your personal background and how you got into shooting. I believe you grew up in New Jersey. And how, how did you find your way into shooting and ultimately shooting as a competitive sport? Actually, by accident. I grew up in a family of, of hunters. So most of the men in my family were hunters. So I grew up around guns. I grew up shooting and hunting. Um, but had absolutely no idea that shooting was any type of organized sport until I was about 14. Um, my dad used to work on a military base back home uh, in New Jersey called Fort Dix. And the FBI leased one of the ranges. So obviously my dad, he was in charge of the maintenance and the scheduling and pretty much everything for all the ranges there. And so he had to deal with these folks. Um, the head firearms instructor one day was talking to my dad about paying for college and the guy said that, uh, yeah, there are universities out there that have shooting teams and they give scholarships. And this guy was a competitive shooter uh, years ago. And so we asked my dad, does your son like to shoot? And my dad's like, yeah, he loves to shoot. Well, bring him over. So I, I went over there one day and he had me shoot some, uh, some rifles, some pistols, some shotgun. He's, he looks at me, he says, oh, you're pretty good with the rifle. And I said, yeah, okay. And he's like, hey, do you, do you want to try this? And I said, well, yeah, sure. It seems interesting. So uh, he kind of got me introduced into the sport. And then after about maybe two or three months, he found a club uh, that was about an hour away from where I lived that had a junior shooting team. And they trained on Friday night. So I started going there and uh, was really lucky that one of the girls that was on that team uh, was on the national team. And so her dad was the coach and he was still shooting now and then uh, as well. So just kind of started there and, and learned a lot, started shooting some competitions and um, just kind of took off from there. Um, was actually, like I said, just really, really lucky about it. And I like the first reason I got into it was just to go to college on a scholarship. That was it. Um, the Olympics and all that stuff was never even a thought until probably a good year and a half or so into my, my shooting career. Um, I was invited to a, a national junior camp in Arkansas and that was July of 1997. And um, I'll never forget sitting there one day because it, it was so hot. It was July in, in Arkansas. We could only train until about 11 in the morning. Then we would take a break for lunch. And then in the afternoon, we would do some physical things, whether it was swimming or, you know, stuff like that or classroom time where we would learn about shooting, um, whether it was technical things with positions or training. But I remember one of the, well, probably one of the most important presentations I've ever seen in my life was when. Um, a guy who ended up becoming my coach in, in college and then continued on to be our national coach for a while. Um, he was a competitor at the time and he was just there kind of helping out as, as one of the coaches. Well, he put up on the board, these two whiteboards, one of them was the four year cycle Olympics to Olympics and everything that happens in between the continental championships, the world cups and, and all those things. And then on the other board, was how do you make the national junior team? How do you progress to make the national team? And then how do you progress to make the Olympic team? And once I saw this roadmap laid out in front of me, I remember sitting there thinking, oh, I can do that. Yeah, I want to do that. I I'm going to do that. And that's when I got the Olympic bug right there at that moment. How old were you at that point? At that point, I was 16. 
You know, it's fascinating to hear that story. And I think this applies to any sport that if you put it on the board and you lay it out and you see it, there's no reason an athlete can't progressively work up towards that pinnacle goal. Exactly. That's I, I've been one to always say to uh, athletes that I've worked with, whether it was when I was you know, still competing uh, with my teammates or, or friends, um, and even now as a coach, you know, if, if you really want something, it is possible. But the most important part is understanding how to make it happen and, and doing the planning part. And once you see how it can all come together, then just making steps every day and, and it is certainly achievable. Yeah, it really is. To help us better understand the sport of shooting, can you give us an outline of what the events are? And let's let's use the Olympics as the benchmark. What are the competitive events in shooting in the Olympics? Okay, um, they changed everything around after 2016, but now the competitive events for rifle, there are multiple shooting events. There's There are three basic disciplines. There's pistol, there's rifle, and there's shotgun. I'll only focus mainly on, on rifle because that's what I did. Right now, there is 10-meter air rifle, there's a single event. There's one for men and one for women. You shoot 60 shots. That's your qualification. They do the scoring in tenths of a point. So it's not just, you know, if you hit the 10 ring, you get a value of 10, or you hit the 9 ring, you get a value of 9. A perfect center shot is called a 10.9. If you just barely touch the 10 ring, it's a 10.0, and then everything in between. So um, the total score years ago when it was just whole numbers, integers, it used to be out of 600. Now it's a maximum of, well, whatever it is, you know, 109 maximum in a, um, a 10 shot series. So it's pretty much impossible to do that. The guns don't shoot that good. Then they take the top eight people. You move forward to a final, the final, if you make it all the way to the end, because it's an elimination final, um, it's 24 shots. They also have a mixed team event now, which is a, a single a man and a woman team, um, obviously from the same country. They have a qualification round, which is, you know, normally intensive a point. Uh, then the team moves forward to a, a semifinal and then the final or the medal round, I should say. And then the last event is uh, 50 meter three position. So that's with a 22 rifle at 50 meters. And that one, you shoot 40 shots in the kneeling position, 40 shots in the prone position, and then you finish with 40 shots in the standing position. And that's the qualification. Then they take the top eight athletes from that. And they move forward to also a three-position final. And again, this one eventually becomes an elimination final, but everyone shoots 15 shots in kneeling, 15 shots in prone. And then if you make it to the end, it ends up being 15 shots in standing as well. And it's, it's pretty quick and a different rhythm to the shooting in the final than it is uh, in the qualification. So those are the, the current events. It used to be where it was uh, a 10-meter air rifle event only. Um, then a 50 meter prone event. So only laying down with a 22 rifle at 50 meters and then the three position event. So you, w did you pick up a specialty of sorts early on? I don't know if I would say a, a specialty. I was always a little bit better at small bore, the 50 meter events than I was at air rifle. I was good at air rifle, but definitely won more stuff in the small bore, small bore events. I won most of my big medals, at least at the Olympics, in uh, prone. I won a gold and a silver in, in the prone events. Also won a world, two world championship medals and a world championship in prone. But in three position, I probably, I know I won way more World Cup medals in three position um, and also uh, won Olympic medal of bronze in, in three position. As you tracked your way up as a teenager through the sport, was there any point in time where you accomplished something, you saw something, you had a vision that said, 
I can do this. I can become an Olympic champion. Was there any kind of a turning point for you? Ooh, that's, that's really hard to say. I don't know. I don't know if there was really a moment when I can say like, yep, I'm going to be an Olympic champion. I don't, I don't know if anyone really believes that or, I mean, I'm sure people probably do. That was always the goal, obviously. Um, and I wouldn't say winning the Olympics was the ultimate goal for me. That was kind of a piece of the puzzle. I think I had a bigger goal, which was to actually be, to try to be a legend in the sport, to be someone who set a good example for others and make a mark on the sport, to, to take the sport a step further. Maybe not to completely change the sport, but maybe change the sport the way that it's played a little bit, um, to just take things down the road somewhere. And I think probably winning a medal or multiple medals at the Olympics was just part of the process. And I really don't even remember if there was a point where I really made a decision about that, that that's what I wanted to be. I think it's probably something that just came along the way. Um, obviously, I had my, my sports heroes, whether it was in shooting once I became a shooter, and even before, like, you know, I was a baseball player for a long time. Um, so I had, you know, other heroes in sport, whether it be baseball or football or, you know, things like that. But just to be one of those guys that people, I guess, look up to or people aspire to be like, to set that example, it's not like, you know, people look at you like, oh my God, I want to be like that guy. It's like, you're setting a good example for how they can act, how they can play the game, um, how they can um, face difficulties um, and then come through on the other side, even stronger. I think that's probably, those were probably my bigger ones. Who were some of the athletes that you looked up to as role models when you were a young athlete making your way up the pipeline? Oh, there, there are a lot. Um, you know, I would say we'll start probably in general sport because that's what I was doing before I became a shooter, but definitely a growing up. I mean, I was, you know, a 49ers fan, Joe Montana. I mean, you know, Joe Montana in the last two minutes of the game. I mean, this is the guy everybody wants to be. He was, he was so clutch. And then, you know, also when I was a kid, my dad, you know, watched a lot of sports, you know, Larry Bird, when he was, when he was playing, um, I, you know, still kind of remember that from the mid to late eighties. And then later on, uh, you know, Peyton Manning, uh, I always really admired Peyton Manning, you know, cause he was one so good, but also just, I, I think his whole approach, like he really understands the game that he plays. He was the guy who can make things happen and just his uh, ability to keep playing the sport at a high level, even to, you know, when he was older, uh, was pretty, pretty impressive. Once I got into shooting, um, some of the people that I'm sure people are, that are hearing this probably won't, probably won't know these names. But for me, uh, one of the legends in our sport, Lotus Wigger, he's actually, I think, the only shooter that's in the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. Lotus actually became a really good friend of mine. Um, when I got into shooting, you know, I'd heard his name and, you know, who he was and, he was a three-time Olympic medalist and, you know, he has probably more shooting medals than anybody. The first time I met this guy was actually when I went to the Junior Olympics in Colorado Springs in 1997. I needed to get some custom earplugs made. And there was this guy there making custom earplugs. So I sat down and this guy puts this stuff in my ear and I'm sitting there waiting for it to harden. And he gives it a little box that you're going to put the things in to put your name on. And I saw it was Lona Swigger. And I looked up, I was like, are you Lona Swigger? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> like, here's like the biggest legend in our sport. He's making earplugs for me. And it ended up being like later, you know, later down the road, we just became really good friends. I, I love that man. He, uh, he unfortunately died a couple of years ago um, after a lengthy battle with cancer, but uh, just one of those lively people that you want to be like. 
he loved life. He shot until, until he couldn't shoot anymore. I mean, basically until the end of his life, but he was always like his, um, he had a charisma about him, just a happy go lucky guy, always a great outlook on things, um, had so much that I could learn from in sport and just in life. And actually it was kind of, kind of sad. The last time I saw him, he actually made me earplugs again. And that was the last time, last time we got a chance to speak. Cause then I, obviously I was living in Europe and, uh, came back and it wasn't, wasn't too long after that he passed. This is a divergence a little bit, but I know Matt, that you also had your own bout with cancer about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, first of all, how is your health today? Health is good. Actually, I go in, uh, next week I have my, my checkups every six months I go in for, for a checkup and the cancer I had was, um, thyroid cancer. And at the time it wasn't all that great, but what I came to learn was if, if you're going to get cancer, that's the one that you want. It doesn't grow very fast. It's very easy to, uh, or generally pretty easy to, to take care of, whether it's surgery and, or things like that. But yeah, every six months I go in for a checkup and they check the, the hormone levels. And there are two hormone levels um, that deal with thyroid stuff. There's the activator hormone, and then there's the actual like hormone in your body um, that regulates metabolism and things like that. So what they always check are those two levels to make sure that the, the pills that I take every day, whether you know, that's enough or too high or too little. Um, but really for the cancer side of it, they check to make sure that the activator hormone hasn't ticked up. And as long as that's essentially zero, then everything's fine. Because if it does tick up, the only thing that that can mean is that there's, there's a thyroid cancer growing in my body again. And, uh, you know, so far so good. Everything's good to go. Um, I also do a sano every, um, once a year. So they just basically check everything around my neck. But yeah, so far, so good. No issues. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I was actually able to return back to relatively normal life pretty quickly after my surgery. But that was back in uh, oh, gee, was fall of 2010. I went through a similar situation with prostate cancer a few years ago. And you do take away some amazing life lessons out of that experience. Oh, yeah. No, that's a fact. Well, let's get back on track with your competitive <laughs> career and move up to the 2004 Olympics in, in Athens. You ended up winning a gold medal there, but it was a rocky road getting to Athens for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, kind of, uh, I guess if we back up four years before, I nearly made the 2000 team uh, in air rifle, believe it or not. At the time, I was actually shooting really good air rifle in 2000. And we had four tryout competitions plus finals. And I ended up missing the team by 1.3 points, which is essentially nothing. And uh, I was really, really upset about it because I really felt that I should have been on the team. I felt that I was prepared. Uh, in hindsight, I would say, could I have gone there and maybe made the final? Yes. Could I have won something? That's a really good question. Was I mentally ready for it? I don't believe so. And so in hindsight, I was actually happy that I did not make the 2000 team. However, because I was so angry that I didn't make the team, it spurred me to work so hard over the next year to improve my game so that didn't happen again. And so that kind of carried through uh, for the next three and a half years after that. But once I got into 2004, um, we were about to go to the Olympic test event in Athens. This was in April. And we were going down to Fort Benning in Georgia for a training camp before for like a week or so training camp. And then we were going to continue on to Athens. So, uh, packed up my things at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. We go down to Fort Benning in the first day of training. So I, I go over to shoot some air rifle and, uh, I'm shooting terrible, like seriously terrible. And I said, Oh, maybe it's just something with the travel. Man, I'll go shoot, shoot some 50 meter, go shoot some prone. That's easy. So, uh, I go over to shoot 50 meter, get in position, 
I put the first bullet in the barrel and it just felt gritty, like sandpapery going. I said, that's really weird. So I shot it and I couldn't get the shell out. I said, hmm. I had to pry it out with a screwdriver. I said, well, well, maybe something was wrong with that bullet. Put the second one in, same thing. And I said, now something's wrong here. So I uh, took the bullet out and uh, I looked at the chamber where you put the bullet in the barrel and it's just all scratched up. And what it looked like is someone took a, a small screwdriver and stuck it in the chamber and just completely destroyed it, just gouged it out. So then I pulled my air rifle out, same thing. And so someone sabotaged my guns. I have no idea who, I have no idea exactly when or how or where, but yeah. So my coach, he's like, that's not good. So he immediately bought a plane ticket, flew back to Colorado Springs that afternoon, um, took my guns with him. And luckily I did have a backup air rifle. So that was pretty much, that was easy. Just pick that up. And then the barrels, he had to go to his uh, father's shop in Colorado Springs to get them uh, rechambered. Brought them back, put them on the gun, and and honestly, the barrel was never the same again. It just never shot that good. Um, so then we, we go over to Athens. I actually did make the final in three by forty, which was whew, really lucky because I was just happy to get into the finals hall and see how it looked um, and shoot there. So then we came back, and I only had I believe two or three weeks before Olympic trials. And in those days, it wasn't a multiple uh, tryout process. It was a once and done tryout, three days in a row, and that's it. Um, so whoever, whoever the top two people are, that's who goes. So I spent most of that time, um, in between the world cup in Athens and the Olympic trials, trying to find a barrel that shot, wasn't having much luck. Uh, I had a friend that sent, uh, his daughter's rifle to me cause she wasn't going to Olympic trials. Um, it shot. Okay. I was going to use that, but then, um, the way the barrel was cut, it was, wasn't cut well. And so the chamber expanded and then started shooting bad. So at the trials, um, the men and women switched. So while the men shot air rifle, the women shot 50 meter. And then once, once we were all done, we switched. So then the men shot 50 meter and the women shot air rifle. And one of my teammates at the time, um, we had been teammates in Alaska where I went to school. Um, I knew she had a really good 22. And I asked her, I said, Amber, I, with the gun that I'm using right now, like I have no chance. Um, you know, can I borrow your gun for, for the small bore events? She said, yeah, no problem. Uh, so yeah, started using her gun, the gunshot great, which I knew won the prone event, won the three position event, made the Olympic team. I'd already made the Olympic team in air rifle when we shot air rifle. And yeah, so unfortunately for her, she didn't make the Olympic team. And so I asked her if I could borrow the rifle for the rest of the season. She said, well, yeah, I'm not going to need it. So, uh, yeah, I used that, that gun, the rest of the season, won the Olympics with it actually ended up using it again in 2008 and want a silver with it and uh, still have the gun. We actually did an exchange after that. I finally found a barrel that shot, put it on my gun. And then we, we did an exchange cause uh, you know, I wanted to, to keep the gun that I'd, I'd shot in the Olympics. So, so yeah, wasn't, wasn't the easiest thing, but it worked out. That's an amazing story. Nice teammate. <laughs> great teammate, great friend, like a sister to me. Let's just talk a little bit about Athens and then I want to get back onto biathlon, but you won, uh, you won gold in the, uh, 50 meter prone mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll move on to the three position. Yeah, it was, um, we started off actually an air rifle. That was the first event. I finished ninth. I just missed the final by, by a little bit. Uh, you know, my first Olympic event with air rifle and I, I have to say I was, I was really nervous. Um, and I was actually pretty satisfied with ninth place, even though I think I could have done better. Um, and I knew my coach knew I could have done better. Um, a few days later we had the prone event and, uh, I'd just been shooting great. Um, you know, prone was always the easier event for me. I had a great position, 
the gunshot grade, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy, easy, but it was easy. So, uh, yeah, we started off and I went into the final in first place, um, shot a good final, ended up winning. And, uh, people asked me, you know, how did it feel? And I said, I, I don't really know how it felt. It was something I'd planned for and I knew I'd done the training for, and I was prepared to do. Um, and I don't really say it was like a surprise or anything like that. It was more like just the satisfaction of, okay, the plan that I had worked and, and everything happened the way that I had hoped for it. And it's just really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I was just super, super excited about it. And then you were on track for a second gold medal in the three position right <laughs> down to the last shot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so earlier when I'd said that, um, one of my goals was to be able to, uh, inspire people even through tough times. Uh, I, I think I hopefully I've done that and th this is where it started. So, yeah, I, uh, we shot the, the qualification and, and I was actually sick. Um, I, I caught a sinus infection or, or something, um, just wasn't feeling good that day. So anyways, um, we shoot in those days, it was, you started with prone and then you shot standing and then you finished with kneeling and, um, shot great prone, no issues there. I think I shot the highest prone, um, shot great standing. I think that was also the highest there that day. Um, but kneeling, I was struggling with kneeling that year. Um, it was up and down like one day could be great. The next day it was terrible. And well, that day it happened to be pretty terrible. So I was really upset after I got done with kneeling. My coach came over. He's like, look, you got to straighten your stuff out because, uh, you're going into the final in second. And so you need to refocus. And I was like, Oh, gee whiz. Okay. So I guess it wasn't that bad. Good thing. My prone and standing were so good. So we go in the final. And in those days it was just a 10 shot standing final different than today. So we go in and I was uh, three points behind the leader. Well, within a couple shots, I caught the guy and uh, I, I didn't know it at the time. I just, you know, roughly knew where I was, but I tried not to pay attention. So we're going through and come to find out, I guess, uh, going into the last shot, I'm a little over three points ahead. So it's one of those deals is pretty much, you know, hit the target. You're going to win. I didn't know that obviously. And what I'd worked on that year was just being able to calm my mind, calm my body and just perform a good shot under pressure. And, uh, went through my process, came down on the target. Boom. I shoot the shot. I'm like, well, it wasn't great, but that's well, not bad. I looked down at the target monitor, their electronic targets, and there's nothing there. So I raised my hand to the jury and I thought maybe there was a problem with the target. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I shot and you know, there's nothing there. And after about a minute, they found out that I shot the target to the right of me and under the rules that shot doesn't count. And I get a zero. So I went from first to eighth and, and the shot was more than enough for me to win. People asked me, you know, what happened? I said, you know, the only thing I can figure is, um, that year, I was also having some issues with my natural point of aim, like where my body naturally wanted to point. And often it was to the right. Um, and the only thing I can figure is I was concentrating so much on just being in my own little world and just doing my routine. And I just let my body go where it wanted to and didn't even pay attention to my natural point of aim and crossfired. Um, so, yeah, that really sucked. And I was like, oh, man, that's that's not good. Um, but my teammate, Mike Ante, he won a silver. He was also in the final. And so I was just really excited for him. So that was a really good distraction, you know? So I go over and gave him a big hug and congratulated him. And, and I have to say the only time it really hurt was when they were given the medals out. And it wasn't that I wasn't there. It was that I wasn't there with Mike. I wanted like, cause if I had won, he would have been bronze. And that mean two Americans on the stand. I mean, how great is that? Um, so I was really sad about that, but otherwise, you know, people say that it could have ended a lot of other people's careers. And I just looked at it as like, well, 
sun's coming up tomorrow and you know, there's going to be other competitions. So we just keep moving forward and we try to do it again next time. And that's, that's pretty much it. Well, as I've heard this story in the past and heard you tell it, I think the one thing that stands out for me is that you were such a good sport about it. And even today, 16 years later, you tell this story as an example and, you know, not one of tremendous regret, but one of teaching a lesson to others and, and analyzing what you did as an athlete. Yeah. You know, it's like I always said, I think part of it was, I was really fortunate that I had a pretty good outlook on sport going in that it's not everything. Obviously it's very important. Um, you're putting so much energy into what you're doing and you want to do well, but it's not the end of the world. Um, it, you know, you're the things that are most important to you are still going to be there tomorrow. It's not that big of a deal. And the only thing you can do is just keep trucking on and keep going. You learn the best you can from it. And, and move forward. Um, and I actually had a similar situation four years later in Beijing and then just came back. But I finally did get that medal in three position in, in London. Yeah. You ended up with three Olympic medals in four Olympic appearances, a full set of gold, silver, and bronze. And where are those medals on display now? <laughs> um, to be completely honest, they're um, in a little little bag which inside this bag, the medals are individually tucked into like little kids um, gloves to protect them from getting scratched. And they're sitting in a drawer next to my bed. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen but them. But you know, <laughs> I know where they are. <laughs> but you can always draw on that. And actually, do you ever bring them out? Um, do you show them to the kids? You know, I don't think I've shown them to the kids in, in quite a while. Um, yeah, it's not something that I think about very often. Usually I would just bring them out for like, you know, some uh, public appearances I used to do for USA shooting or other, you know, things like that. But um, on a normal basis, like, like, nope, <laughs> they just, they just sit in the drawer. That's where they are. <laughs> Well, they're, co they're comfortable there. Let's segue over to biathlon. And how did you make the transition from Olympic shooter, shooting coach to biathlon? Um, a little bit of a long story. I kind of spent some time around biathlon back between the summers of 2000 and 2002. Um, I went to school in Alaska and in Fairbanks, uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And then during the summers, I actually spent my time uh, in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, not very far from Anitaska. Um, they used to have a really nice indoor 50 meter range there. It's, it's just a great place. So that's where I was going and spending my summers training and, and traveling around the country and the world uh, competing. So obviously there's a group of biathletes there. We did some cross training together. Like I would do some workouts with them and we would do some shooting together now and then. So that was kind of my introduction to biathlon always really respected the sport, always enjoyed it. You know, just, I, I love to cross country ski, obviously going to school in Alaska, where you have snow for six months of the year, you got to find something to do outside. So learned to cross country ski, fell in love with it. And then really didn't have much contact with biathlon for a while after that. Um, once I went to Colorado Springs in 2004, our national team athletes would occasionally have a camp there sometime in the early, early summer. Um, so every once in a while, the biathletes would come in, but never really spent a lot of time around them. Uh, didn't really know the guys that well at the time, um, but obviously, you know, said hi and stuff like that. So then we fast forward to somewhere around probably 2015. Um, my sports psychologist, Sean McCann, that I'd worked with pretty much my whole career, uh, started working with the biathlon team. 
and when I found that out, I, I said, Hey, Sean, you know, if they ever need help with the shooting, like, you know, I've, I un- understand biathlon. Um, you know, I've been around it, did a little bit of it. Cause I ended up moving back to Grand Rapids, um, between 2009 and 11 and actually did some cross training occasionally. And so I said, yeah, just let me know if they need help. I, I, I think I could offer some, something that could be useful. And so he talked to a uh, Baron Eisenbickler at the time, who was our, um, chief of sport. And then Baron got a hold of me and, um, said, yeah, you know, maybe we'd be interested. So I had a meeting with our men's coach at the time and yeah, they invited me to, to start helping out for, I think the first, maybe two or three years, I was just like kind of working as a contractor. So when I had a hole in my schedule as, cause I was still competing at the time, uh, I would go and do training camps or world cups with the team and started working with them. And, you know, obviously learning some of the, the nuances, uh, the differences between competitive shooting, like precision shooting and biathlon. Um, there are a lot of things that carry over. I think the base is pretty much the same, um, but obviously there are some differences that you have to get used to and how to work with the athletes. And one other thing that I think carries over is just the mental game. I thought I had a pretty good uh, handle on the mental game um, my whole career. And that's something that it doesn't really matter the sport. Um, those things kind of apply no matter what you do. So, so that's kind of how I got into it. And yeah, now I've, I'm retired from shooting and, and pretty much working more for, for biathlon. Where did you pick up cross-country skiing? Did you ski as a, a young boy in New Jersey, or was that when you got to Alaska? No, when I got to Alaska. You know, where I grew up, really nobody cross-country skied at all. You know, we would get those nor'easters that would come by, and, you know, I mean, really nobody did it. There wasn't enough snow uh, consistently to, to even get interested in cross-country skiing. So I got into it when I got to Alaska. Um, like I said, I just wanted something something to do outside and thought it would be a cool way. Cause I enjoyed running and, and, you know, doing anything physical. So I was like, well, this, this looks like fun. And it's a challenge cause it's, it's not so easy when you've never done it before. And also I, I had quite a few friends that were on the cross country ski team in Alaska. Um, the, uh, the whole athlete community, uh, in Fairbanks was a pretty tight knit community. Um, so we spent a lot of time with the skiers and I would go ski with them and they would teach me things here and there. And yeah, it's kind of how I, how I got into it. So, Clearly, one of the big differences between what you did as an Olympic shooter and what biathletes do is the fact that you were able to come into your venue, your shooting venue, with your mindset and your body ready. But the biathletes are coming in after having punished themselves out on the cross-country track. That's a big difference. And how, how do you adapt for that in the shooting and what counsel do you give the athletes on how to get their mind and their body stable to have the best success in the marksmanship phase of biathlon? Whew, that's, that's, that's a really good question. That's multifaceted. I would say one thing in a general sense, um, obviously their fitness level, they have to know where they are and every venue is different. So your approach to the range some of the approaches to the range are really easy, more of a downhill approach. Some are an uphill approach. Some are at altitude. Some are at lower altitude. Um, so the athlete has to understand where their body is and what they can and can't do. And if they don't train to come into the range super hot, like with a super high heart rate and just completely dying, then you don't want to hit the range that way. So I always, you know, we talk about, and for every person, it could be a little, little bit different. Um, where they need to start backing off just a little bit. So they hit the range and they're not completely dead. Um, obviously with some of the longer races, whether it's the individual, you know, once you get to your fourth shooting stage, it pretty much doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be tired. 
Um, but to be, be aware of that. And then also there needs to be a mental switch. So at some point, whether it's, you know, a hundred meters before the range or as they come around the corner into the range or when they see the flags or whatever it might be, there needs to be a point where they switch from the skier to the shooter and they need to start thinking about what am I going to do on this shooting stage? What do I need to pay attention to? And it's where their focus is. Is it a windy day or is it an easy day? Take care and check what the wind is doing. Get your focus on that. Once you hit the mat, how many breaths are you taking? Counting breaths. One thing that I talk about constantly, and they probably are tired of hearing me say it, is breathing is your anchor. So whether it's as you're coming into the range, getting oxygen into your body, once you hit the mat and get in position, how many breaths do you take before the first shot? In between shots, how many breaths are you taking? If you're not diligent about that work, then your brain doesn't know what to expect. And that's when the wheels can fall off. So I'm like, whatever it is, make sure it's a planned out process that you're, you're not going to surprise yourself by accident and you follow that process that you've trained. And that's how you're going to give yourself the best chance for success. doesn't guarantee success, but it gives you your best chance. Um, once we take that even further, though, there's a whole lot of things that come into the, the base. So when we do our summer training, like having solid positions, if you have a solid position that you can trust and it's natural for you and you have a good hold on the target, obviously the shooting is going to be a lot easier. Um, but there are a whole lot of other things, but those are probably the base things. In biathlon, uh, at least in the U.S., it seems to be the case that most athletes come into the sport with a cross-country skiing base, and then they have to add the marksmanship. How or what do you recommend for an athlete who's thinking about biathlon, and how do they add that component of marksmanship? What are the things they should do in learning that aspect and then meshing it together with their cross-country skiing? That's, that's actually a very good question. And one that we talk about often among the coaching staff, um, actually we're in some discussions about what we can do better with that in the future right now. The first thing I would say, and these are just kind of general things is, you know, one, definitely try to seek out the best coach that you can to teach you the basics of shooting. There are actually some precision shooting books out there, not very many of them, but there are some that at least teach the basics of, um, body structure and, and how the positions for prone and standing are supposed to be built. And I think there are things that can be used from there because basically the body doesn't change, whether it's a biathlete or a, a precision shooter, the way the position works itself for stability is pretty much the same. Learning how to simply shoot good. That's one thing that I'm big on. Um, so actually this year when we changed around the, um, the way that we approach the shooting training for the summer training, uh, we spent a little bit more targeted time this year on actually the precision base. And that's the ability to simply shoot really good. You know, a lot of where the, the shooting training was separate from the physical training. So they're not shooting with heart rate constantly. Uh, they're actually learning how to shoot good and then carrying that gradually into doing combo workouts and, and working in the heart rate through the year. We have a long training season, so there actually is time within the, in the, uh, the training season to do that. So, for a beginning person that's getting into the, the shooting aspect of it, you know, I also can't have to say like, shoot a lot. You know, there's definitely something to be said for the hours. You know, if you look at someone who's coming over from skiing, they have so many hours probably already built up in their body from skiing, which you need. But when it comes from the shooting standpoint, um, they pretty much have zero. 
And what I've seen is when you have someone who comes over to biathlon, say we'll say anywhere from age 20 to even 24, it's probably going to take them at least five years until they really feel good about their shooting, if not more. Can we get them to be, if they're a really good skier, can we get them to be on the national team and be competent to even go to a World Cup within a couple of years? Absolutely. If they're a really good skier and a halfway decent shot, yeah. But will they be their best? It's probably going to take five, five years or more until they're there. So that's where like the hours, um, just shooting a ton, dry firing a ton. You know, I, I just can't emphasize that enough. You, you need to get the hours somewhere. As I've watched the sport of biathlon over the last few years, one athlete who's really amazed me, and she was on the podcast Heartbeat uh, with me about a month ago, is Claire Egan, who didn't even pick up a rifle until she was around 25 years old and within a few years was competitive. And now at the age of 33, uh, she's still very competitive in her sport. But that late start uh, has has intrigued me about a biathlon. And uh, it is possible for an athlete to get a late start and still make up that ground quickly and become competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say like with Claire and, and you can see like going back to the last question, like how, how long it actually takes, you know, Claire's been doing the sport now for what, I guess, seven, eight years or so. And I would say probably not that she wasn't competitive before she obviously was, but until I think even she would probably say herself that she had a good handle on the shooting. It's actually this year. Um, she's been getting steadily better and better. And prone was one that she was always pretty good at. She's always been a pretty solid prone shooter, but especially the standing. Um, finally this year, she's gotten to the point where she has command of it. She's able to confidently stand there in the last shooting stage of standing and clean the, clean the series. She can do that now with confidence where, you know, before she had a really difficult time with that. And I have to say like with her, it's, it's the time she's put a lot of focused time in over the last two, three years. Um, and I wouldn't say that she wasn't focused before it's been just focused differently. And also with our, our new coach, well, not, not so new, but with Armin Alcantaler, um, Armin works extremely well with, with Claire. They, they work, that relationship is great. Um, Claire gets so much from him. And honestly, Armin's a fantastic coach. And he has a, not only is he really, really good with the, the physical training, Armin has a great knowledge of the shooting as well. Um, so being able to work with him has been just, I mean, it's been a dream for me. It's so much fun. Um, but having, when I'm there and, and can give her direction and then Armin also has given her direction, like, and she's been putting in the hours, it's, it's really come together. So, I mean, obviously anyone can do it. And we have other ones. I mean, uh, Deidre Irwin came over, uh, later in, in, um, in her career as well. And she's a very good talented shooter, but she's still one of those ones where it's like, it's there, but it still needs more time. Um, and then even Susan Dunkley was another one that came over later on and, um, you know, Really, this year, it doesn't really show in her racing percentage this year with the shooting. But this year, I think she took some really big steps forward um, with her shooting. Some of her precision testing and other testing that we do um, has been the best that I've ever seen from her. And honestly, her shooting percentage does not show how good she actually is. And I'm really hoping that the second and third trimesters um, that comes through and shows what she's really capable of. Speaking of Susan Dunkley, let's go back to the World Championships last year, another medal for Susan in Antholtz. What is your role in an environment like that, the big event, be it the Olympics or the World Championships? What, what, what is the, the role that you play to help the athletes to achieve that pinnacle of success for themselves? Honestly, 
when I'm there with them, with them at the bigger events, I wouldn't say my job is easy, but it actually is pretty easy because it's getting back to the very base and the simple things, the performance things. Now, unfortunately, I came in in the second half of Worlds last year, so I wasn't there to see. I mean, I watched it on TV, but I wasn't there live to see Susan do that. But when I am there working with them, um, obviously, I'm on the range. We're doing the zero. I'm telling them what, what I think the wind is doing, what their zero is, what the wind usually does, what I think it's going to do, um, and just what to be prepared for. So they have that game plan in their head for what to pay attention to on the range. And then also we just talk about simple things like, you know, what's the simple key for you today to perform? Uh, when we're doing dry fire, we talk about the simple things, like just getting back to like a simple thing that they can hang on to perform. I don't want to, to flood them with a bunch of information because that's not the time to do that. Um, these guys have put in months and months of training to be prepared for that moment. They have everything or whatever they have is what they have. So when you get back to the very basics, the very simple things, like just be, be good on the trigger, see the recoil, pay attention to your breathing. And it's a little bit different for each athlete, what that key might be. Um, but when I know the athletes well enough and I know what they're doing, um, and what they've been working on, then I can get them back to that key. And it's like, go back to this key and just do this one thing. Well, that's all you need to worry about. And then just basically let them go and do their job. And then after the race is over, you know, we, we talk, you know, if it was good, okay, what was good. And if it was not good, okay, what wasn't so good, but what also did you do well? And what can we do tomorrow and just move forward? So it's, I would say when it's at, we're at the big events, it's actually more what's going on between the ears and simple strategy things than anything else. Matt, before we uh, wrap things up here with a few fun questions, just one more serious one to you. If you look back at your career as an athlete, as a coach, what really stands out to you and something that you personally have taken away from your engagement with sport? That's a great question. You know, I think I've always tried to keep things in, in perspective with sport, that it's, it's a game that we play. And I think that it's a great vehicle for a person to um, stretch themselves, to grow, to give them confidence, to take things on in life. But at the same time, it's, it's just a game that we play. And it's a game is supposed to be fun. And so when we're doing it, even though there are definitely days when we compete, there are definitely days that we train when uh, it may not be so much fun. But at the end of the day, we have to remember there, there has to be a pleasure in, in taking pains. I can't remember which uh, philosopher said that, but uh, I believe that that's actually true. And I think trying to make steps forward and enjoy that process of, of growing and learning um, and just appreciating every day that you get to go do something that's actually pretty fun to do um, is a gift. And so just always keeping that in perspective. Well said, Matt Emmons. Thank you very much. Now we're going to have a little fun. I've got a few little questions. Uh, no right or wrong answers. There's nothing that's going to stump you here. It's simple stuff. So to begin our session of On Target here today on Heartbeat, Matt, what is your favorite biathlon venue? Oh, man, that's a great question. The first one that pops into mind has to be on tolls. Um, I can't imagine a more beautiful place to be and get a chance to go ski around on the trails and shoot stuff um, and just hang out. Antolts is just great. Um, it's just pic picturesque. The weather is usually great. Um, just an awesome place to be. Uh, I wouldn't say that there are other venues that I 
Well, maybe Oberhof I don't like so much, but probably my favorite would be Anholtz. But there's still more. There are other venues I need to see. Well, I haven't been to Anholtz yet, but it wins every every time. I have been to Oberhof. <laughs> uh, a sport you enjoy outside of shooting and let's say outside of cross-country skiing. Um, a sport that I enjoy. You know, I, I've always really enjoyed hockey. Um, I don't play hockey, but I love watching it. Uh, being in Alaska, hockey was kind of the big sport there. Um, you know, we would always go to the home games. Um, you know, a lot of the hockey players were my friends. Um, I just always really, really thought it was a, a fun game to watch, a really well thought out game. I enjoy the strategy of it and how plays come together. And yeah, I just always really enjoyed it. So I, I think that one's a cool one. Yeah, I was a baseball player for a long time. So yeah, kind of have something for baseball too. But honestly, I haven't watched a baseball game in forever. I haven't even thrown a ball in forever. Well, it's a baseball is probably not as popular in the Czech Republic. <laughs> not so much, but believe it or not, my nephew, well, my brother-in-law played baseball and uh, my nephew played for a little while too, believe it or not. So Matt, how did you meet your wife? Oh, that was a crazy story. Um, actually, we met for the first time in Athens at the Olympics. Before that, of course, I, I knew who she was and I, I knew who her dad was. Um, he was a, a famous shooter from, from years ago and then was the, the Czech national team coach. And it was after the three-position event where I crossfired and, and missed out on a gold medal. Um, that was the last shooting event. And so, you know, we just, all of us athletes, we just wanted to go and take it easy. And there happened to be like a little beer garden in between the, the pistol and rifle ranges and the shotgun ranges. So a lot of us athletes went up there and just decided to sit down and have a beer and just chat. So I was sitting there chatting with some of my friends and then um, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and I look up and it's, well, at that time, not my wife, obviously, but it was my wife. She's looking at me and I said, holy smoke, she's, she's talking to me. What do I do? <laughs> And she just came over with her dad and said, Hey, you know, we, um, you know, we're really sorry about what happened. And, uh, you know, we want to give you this little four leaf clover, um, keychain thing that we've carried around for good luck. And, uh, we really appreciate how you handled it. And we really thought that, you know, you were the winner today and, and all that. So that was, that was really nice. And then a couple months later at the world cup final, it's a much smaller event. It's a world cup, but only the top 12 people from the world are invited back. Um, so I was there, she was there and, um, she was actually sitting at the range one day, just doing homework outside. Um, she was in school and so was I at the time. And so I just sat down and started chatting with her. We just hit it off really well. Um, and we could tell that there was something between us, but we honestly didn't start dating until about a year after that and uh, didn't see each other in between that point. Didn't really talk. And then when we saw each other again, like there was still something there and you couldn't ignore it. Um, so yeah, we started dating and then got married in 2007 and uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> That, that it really is such a great story. Do you still have the four-leaf clover? Yep, I still do. I still do. I still do. Great. Okay, let's get back on to marksmanship. I, I know that you and the family are hunters, and I would imagine that whenever you go hunting, they're looking over to Matt and say, well, Matt's the one who's going to bag the elk or the deer or whatever it happens to be. But do you have a favorite hunting story where your marksmanship skills really came to the fore? Oh, that's a really good question. I can definitely think of some really funny ones where I've missed. That's for sure. Some of the funnier stories are from my grandfather, believe it or not, with some of his crazy marksmanship stuff. I remember one time, and this is a story I have to share because it was just, I had to, you had to be there to be in the moment, but we're, uh, we're walking around and 
we were hunting with uh, shotguns with slugs. And normally your effective range is like maybe 75 yards. And even worse, my, my grandfather, uh, bless his heart, <laughs> he, he never did anything normal. So he had a rifled slug barrel. And in a rifled slug barrel, you're supposed to use sabos. Well, my grandpa decided it was probably better to use the cheaper rifled slugs, which you're supposed to use in a smoothbore barrel. But he figured they would work good enough in this barrel. So <laughs> who knows how he sighted this thing in or how it even shot. Well, we're walking around and we see this deer at probably, I don't know, 150, 175 yards, maybe. And he's like, should I shoot? I, said, I don't know. I was like, it's pretty far. Where should I am? I said, you better aim really high. Well, he raises up the gun, shoots, and no joke, the deer just fell over dead. Just fell right over. <laughs> How he did it, I have no idea. And like, this was just some of the stuff that he would do. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Knock the deer over dead, dead as a door now on his tracks. And how he did it, I don't know. But like, this is one of many stories of things like this happening to my grandpa. Another one with him, he uh, had another gun that you, you could take the scope on and off. And I think that was, a, that was also a slug gun, something like that. Well, anyways, he uh, calls my dad one evening. Hey, can you come help me get this deer? I, I got a deer. So my dad goes over to, to help him. And he comes back, my dad comes home, I don't know, maybe an hour later, and just laughing as he walked in the door. And he's like, you're never going to believe what he did. And I said, tell me. Apparently, my, gra my grandpa was sitting in his deer blind, and this deer comes in at about 50 yards. And he looks through the scope, and he's like, man, that deer looks really far away. And he shoots and somehow kills the deer. Well, come to find out, he put the scope on backwards. How he hit the deer... I knew that's yeah. where you were going. That's yeah. amazing. How he hit the deer, I have no idea. But like I said, this is some of the stuff. Like I wouldn't say there are any crazy marksmanship stories of my own. I mean, yeah, there are some really good shots that I've made. Um, but some of the ones of my grandfather are the ones that I really um, always think of very fondly. Those, those, those are really priceless. We're going to close it out with one final, final question. If you were to describe biathlon in one word, what would it be? Oh, man. That is in one word. That's a great question. I got to think about that one. Um, probably the first word that comes to my mind is uh, difficult because you're combining so many aspects because it's, it's such a technical sport from a ski standpoint. When you look at just, you know, everything that goes into the physical training and just being able to be fast on the day, whether it's your actual ski technique, the training that goes into it. So you are in good shape when it matters. Um, all of the preparation that goes into the skis themselves, um, the testing of the skis, everything, um, the, the, you know, testing of the skis in the summertime when we're actually selecting which skis we're going to race on, all of that part. And then you add on the shooting compound. And the shooting part of it is also so technical because you have the rifle itself, the accuracy of the rifle, the ammo testing, the positions. Um, and then on top of that, you add the mental game. There are so many things that you have to be good at to be a great biathlete. And it's, and it's getting even more difficult because um, as time goes on, you have, you know, just more people doing it in certain countries. It's, it's a pretty popular sport. Um, so I, I would say the first, the first word that comes to mind would be difficult just because of that. But at the same time, I think it's one of the most amazing sports. So, yeah. 
That's good. We'll take that. It is a difficult sport. Matt Emmons, thank you for joining us on Heartbeat. It's been an honor to talk to you. You are an Olympic champion. You are a coach who is giving back to the next generation of biathletes. And on behalf of all of us at U.S. Biathlon, thank you for what you do to help these athletes find their pathway to the top. No, thanks, Tom. No, it's it's um, it's honestly a gift that I'm able to to work with um, with the biathletes. They're a great group of people, um, so much fun, great staff to work with. Um, and just, I admire the athletes and, and what they put themselves through every day to be, to be good at a sport like this. It's just been, it's been a lot of fun. Hope to be, to continue to do it for a while to come. Well, we look forward to it. Matt Emmons, thank you for joining us on Heartbeat. Thank you. Thank you. Matt Emmons, thanks for spending time with Heartbeat and for the influence you've had on our U.S. biathlon team. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat. You can help us out by taking just a moment to write a review and make sure you subscribe so you get each episode sent directly to you as soon as it's out. You'll find Heartbeat on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'll be back with another episode of Heartbeat soon. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. For all of us at U.S. Biathlon, thanks for joining us on Heartbeat.